It was prophesied before they left that they would raise the dead. You all remember that? Joseph O. called me and said, I really feel like it's going to be a child. Just really sense the Lord saying it's going to be a child that they're going to raise from the dead. Well, sure enough, in one of the meetings, a woman comes who, had, who was pregnant and the baby had died in her womb. And when my wife and the team prayed over her, the woman turned to the interpreter and said, my baby is alive. I feel it. And so God fulfilled his word. They saw the dead raised just as God spoke. I don't know if that excites anybody here, but I mean, just, oh, that's good. Turn that so it faces me. There we go. Um, listen, I, I have something to share with you today. Today is part two. First, okay, I'm doing a four-part series on the kingdom of God. Part one was last night at the ark. This is part two right now. Second service at 11.15 is going to be part three. And next Saturday night at the ark is going to be part four of this series on the kingdom of God. And what I'm going to do is make all four messages available on both the ark and Living Hope's website. So you don't have to be here for all of them. <coughs> what you want to do is pick up the MP3 recordings from our website of the second service message and also the last night's message and then be looking forward for next Saturday's message at the ark. This message is on the kingdom of God. The series of messages is on the kingdom of God. And the subject of the kingdom of God is a very important subject for our, con our consideration. We've got a hum or something in this monitor up here. Maybe turn off every other microphone except for my, my lapel mic or just unplug that one. And so we're talking about the kingdom of God and it's a very important subject for us to talk about because the primary burden of the, of the ministry of Jesus and of the preaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 says, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So what he preached was the gospel of the kingdom of God. He did not preach, uh, you know, he did not preach social agendas. He did not preach uh, uh, transformation in the realm of education. What he preached was the kingdom of God. Now, all of his parables, and speaking of the kingdom of God, he talks about what the kingdom of God is like. And whenever he uses the word like, it means that he is describing but not defining the kingdom of God. He's saying the kingdom of God is like this. I'm going to describe it for you so that you can see what it is like. He's using analogy. He's using simile. He's using metaphor. He's telling us parables that give us an idea of what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a man who uh, sowed scattered seed in a field. You know, he scattered seed and some seed fell on the road and it was picked up by the birds and others fell among stones and it grew quickly and then it, it, it withered quickly and others was thrown among thorns and it came almost to fruition but then the weeds began to choke it out but then other seed fell on good soil and it began to produce a crop some 30, some 60 and some 100 fold. So he tells us these parables of the kingdom and he gives us an idea of what the kingdom of God is like. But he never defines the kingdom. He never says this is the kingdom of God. In order to understand what the kingdom of God is, we have to go to the teaching of Paul. And there's two primary passages of Scripture in which Paul says this is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is. The first passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. He says the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. The kingdom of God is not a bunch of words. It's power. It's not a bunch of principles. 
It's power. If you talk to most people and ask them what the kingdom of God is, they'll allude to kingdom principles. Well, it's the principles. No, the kingdom is not a group of principles. People will talk about Christian values. It's not Christian values. It's not principles and it's not values. You can have Christian values and not be in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is power. Now, a kingdom, the word in the Greek is basileia. It means the right to rule. Your kingdom is the realm in which you possess the right to rule. When you enter into your kingdom, you have every right to call the shots there because you have the right to rule there. The kingdom of God is God's right to rule. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, what he means is that God has come to exercise his right to rule. So Paul says God's right to rule is not manifested in words but in power. God manifests his right to rule when he releases and manifests his power. And I talked a lot about that last night. That's what I focused on last night. And so I want you to pick up that message, and we're going to put it on the Living Hope website tonight so that you can all download it and hear what that's all about. The second passage of Scripture is Romans 14, 17. In Romans 14, 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So these are the four components of the kingdom of God. It is first power, and then it is righteousness, and then it is peace, and then it is joy in the Holy Spirit. Power, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you're missing one of these components, you have something less than the kingdom. I don't care how powerful our ministries are, the kingdom of God doesn't come until it comes in power, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't care how influential we are upon the culture, if, we're, if the influence doesn't come through power, righteousness, peace, and joy through the Holy Spirit, it's less than the kingdom. I don't care if we transform the educational system in this city. I don't care if we get 10,000 people in this church. I don't care if we transform government and politics and business and arts and entertainment. If we can transform all of those things but not release the power of God, not bring the righteousness of God, not release the peace of God, and not walk in the joy of the Holy Spirit, and it's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, first of all, is power. Secondly, the kingdom of God is righteousness. And righteousness, these are all connected. Righteousness actually flows from power. The, the righteousness of God is the necessary result of the manifestation of the power of God. The righteousness of God is the necessary result of the, of the manifestation of the power of God. Whenever God begins to release His power, the result is righteousness. That's why righteousness is another mark of the kingdom. And I'll tell you why. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said to the Corinthians, My message and my preaching among you were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of God of man, but in the power of God. He says, I don't want your faith to rest in man's wisdom. I want it to rest in God's power. That's why when I came to you in my preaching, I didn't come with persuasive words of human wisdom. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And the result of the demonstration of the Spirit's power is faith. 
Whenever the Spirit begins to manifest His power, people start believing. And people start believing in the power of God. Now let me, let me explain this. Let me break it down. The word righteousness, dikaiosune, literally means rightness, but it's not an intellectual rightness. It's a relational rightness. It means to be right with God and others. And the concept of righteousness is a covenantal concept. If there's no covenant, there's no such thing as righteousness. So if Daniel and I, we own two pieces of property that are right next to each other, adjacent to one another, we're walking alongside the boundary of the, where our two properties meet, and we come upon a well. And a discussion ensues to determine, is it his well or my well? Is it on his property or my property? We don't know. And this happened all the time in the ancient world. We finally decide that it's Daniel's well. Now we're going to make some negotiations. Well, what if my men inadvertently drink from your well? If that happens, then I'll pay you this amount of money. Now we're going to make a covenant. We take an animal, we cut it in half, we lay out the pieces. We take hands and we walk between the pieces and we state the terms of the covenant. This well is yours and I make covenant with you that if we drink any water from it, we'll pay you this amount of money because this belongs to you. And we make covenant. Now... And then he'll have his side of the covenant too. And I promise that I'll never charge you more than this much for the water from this well. I'll never, you know, I'll never mistreat you in this way. So we make a covenant with each other. And what we're saying is we're making this covenant so that we can be in right relationship. The covenant is a means to rightness of relationship between Daniel and I. So that neither of us defrauds the other. So that there's no potential for either of us to feel like you're mistreating me. The terms of the covenant are laid out very clearly. And we cut the animal in half as a symbol that says, if I do not honor this covenant, may it be to me as it was to this animal. Covenant is about the exchange of life. I put my life on the line to say I'm going to be right with you. And when I live up to the demands of the covenant I've made with Daniel, I'm called righteous. And when he lives up to the demands of the covenant that he's made with me, he's called righteous. Now, to be right with God, we've got to enter into covenant with Him and then live up to the demands of that covenant. Now we've got a problem, don't we? Because there's none righteous, no, not one, before God. Not one of us has the power. Anybody, I, don't, I don't talk to very many believers who say, I woke up this morning, I made a covenant with God that I will never sin, and I'm righteous now. If it was up to us, all of us would be cut in half like animals. So God comes to make covenant with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I want you to bring out these animals. I want you to cut them in half. I want you to lay out the pieces. And I want you to beat off the buzzards. Remember I preached a message called beating off the buzzards. And then I want you to wait. And Abraham's thinking God's going to come and take his hand and the two of them are going to walk through the pieces and he and God are going to be in covenant. Instead, God puts him to sleep. Says, Abraham, you don't have any part of this. I'm making covenant with you, not you with me. And God walks through the pieces by himself. And God makes promises to Abraham. Abraham doesn't make any promises to God. Because God knows we're too wishy-washy to make him any promises. How many times have you made promises to God? God, I promise I'll tithe. How long did that last? God, I promise I'll never say that again. How long did that last? 
Most of the time when we make promises to God, it's nothing but foolishness. God doesn't even pay attention to it anyway. Yeah, right. Peter, in the upper room, you know, in the, in the, at the, the feast of Passover, Lord, if everyone departs from you, I'll never abandon you. Yeah, sure. Just wait till tomorrow morning when that rooster starts crowing three times. You'll already have denied me three times. He's not basing it on our promises to him. He's basing it on his promises to us. He had already told Peter, come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. I'm going to overwhelm all of your broken promises with my unbroken promises. And so in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God makes promises to Abraham and it says, Abraham believed God. And God said, that's enough, you're righteous. The only part of the covenant that God expects from us is faith. Abraham believed God, and God said, you're righteous. And so that's why the New Testament teaching on righteousness is based on faith. Paul talks about justification by faith. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Abraham believed God, and God said, you're righteous. You're right. That's all I need from you is for you to believe. You can't make it happen, but I can I don't need you to believe you can make it happen. I need you to believe I can make it happen. I don't need you to believe that you're going to do everything right. I need you to believe I'm going to make everything right. I don't need you to believe you can do it. I need you to believe I can do it. If you just rise up in faith and say, God, I believe you. I believe your word. I believe what you've spoken. I believe what you've done. I believe what you've given me. I believe what your word says. I believe it. I believe it. God says that's righteousness right there. You've got righteousness. And that is why the kingdom of God is manifested first in power. Because Paul says when I release power, it stimulates your faith. But when you begin to believe... God begins to declare you righteous. And so the kingdom of God is righteousness. It's righteousness. It's first power, and then it's righteousness. And because righteousness comes by faith, God's reign and God's kingdom is manifested in our lives as we walk in faith. See, when we think about the kingdom expanding, we think about our works. I want to expand the kingdom of God, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go preach the gospel on the street. I'm going to go help some old ladies across the street. I'm going to go pick up some cans and some garbage. I'm going to go volunteer at the school. And all of these are wonderful things. I'm going to go on a mission trip and take the gospel to, to, to Mentawi. Wonderful things. I'm going to take in some orphans. We think about works that I need to do. Let me do some works because through these works, we're going to expand the kingdom of God. And God says, that's all fine and dandy. It's wonderful for you to do all those works. But make sure that at very root, you are walking in faith. Because if you're not walking in faith, it's sin. Whatever's not done of faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says there's only one thing that pleases God. Faith. He's not pleased by our works. He's not pleased by our sacrifice. He says, I don't need your sacrifice. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> Cattle on a thousand hills belong to me. I don't need any more sacrifice. You ever been to heaven? You think he needs your money? Your time, your sacrifice, he's doing pretty well. You know what he wants? He wants your faith. He wants your faith. He wants you to believe. Now, this morning I was in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not the renewing of your actions, the renewing of your mind. You see, so much of what we do in Christianity that we call discipleship is simply based on the reformation of behavior. 
Change your behavior. Get your behavior right. Learn to do. Learn to do. Learn to go to church every Sunday. Learn to go to to midweek service every Thursday night. Learn to go to Bible study. Learn to read your Bible every day. Learn to pray. Learn to give your tithe. And learn to give your offering. And all of these things are good things. Don't get me wrong. I, I do them. But what God is looking for is the renewing of our minds. In other words... If your mind is not renewed after the things of God, then it is following the pattern of this world. That means that the pattern of this world is a state of mind, a way of thinking. Renewing your mind means to separate your way of thinking from the way of thinking of the world. It means that you refuse to think the way the world thinks. And it says if you allow the Spirit of God to renew your mind, you'll prove what is that good Perfect and acceptable or pleasing will of God. It's the good will of God. The word in the, in the Hebrew is told. It's the good will of God. Why is it good? First of all, you must understand that the word good in the Hebrew is a superlative. There's nothing greater than good. The best thing God can say about you is you're good. That's good. Us, when we use the word good, it's like it's I, you know. How's the food? Oh, it's good. It's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how, how did you like the service today? It was good. It was good. It was good. Yeah. But when somebody it's great. You know, it was excellent. It was superb. You know, these, these are superlatives that we use in our language. In Hebrew, there's one superlative, good. That's the highest level. When God says good, you're like, did God said I was good? Wow! But God's pronouncement of good It's only placed upon his creation when his creation comes into obedience. And God said, let there be light. And creation obeyed, and there was light. He looked upon his creation and saw that his creation was in a state of obedience, and God saw the light, that it was good. So to prove the good will of God means to bring your mind into obedience to God. And then he said, the perfect will of God. The word perfect in the Greek is telos. It means literally mature or complete. He's looking for obedience, but secondly, he's looking for maturity. Follow me. If you look at the three, ste- the three sections of the tabernacle, there was the outer court, there was the inner court, and there was the Holy of Holies. In the outer court, there was two things. There was the golden laver, which was the wash basin. And then there was the brazen altar, which was where they burnt the offerings and the sacrifices. So two things happened in the outer court, washing and sacrifices, and washing and sacrifices, and washing and sacrifices. All you do in the outer court is just get cleansed from your sin and make a sacrifice for it. And then you sin again and you get cleansed from your sin and make a sacrifice for it. Get cleansed from your sin. It corresponds to 1 John chapter 2 when John says, I write to you children because your sins have been forgiven for the, for the sake of his name. Meaning what you're learning in your infancy stage in Christianity is that your sins are forgiven. And so you're washing and sacrificing and washing and saying, your whole prayer life is about, Lord, set me free from this, and God, get me free from this, and God, forgive me of this, and God, wash me of this, and God, cleanse me of this, and you never get beyond forgiveness, washing and sacrificing and washing and sacrificing. That's all that happens in the outer court. But to enter into the inner court, first of all, the priest must be stripped and must be shaved and must put on a new garment. 
Before you enter into the inner court, he strips you of everything, and you go into the inner court, and what's in the inner court is the golden lampstand that gives light and the bread of the presence. It's called the bread of the presence. You go into the inner court, you move to the next stage, and suddenly the light of revelation begins to shine because God begins to speak to you, and God begins to show you things, and you start eating the bread of the presence. You begin to encounter the presence of God in a living way, and it's bread. It comes as word. It's the word of God that comes and manifests the presence of God, and the light of revelation begins to shine. He brings you into the inner court where you begin to grow up in the things of God, and suddenly when you're spending time with God in prayer, you're not just conscious of all of the sins that need to get broken off your life. You're conscious of the presence of God. You're conscious that He's revealing something to you. He's showing something to you. He's making Himself known to you. But then there's a veil that's 16 feet high, six, six inches thick. And on the other side of that veil is the Ark of the Covenant, and it's really the throne room. The mercy seat is really the throne of God. And when you enter into the throne room, you're actually going beyond the presence you already ate the bread of presence in the inner court. There's a difference between the presence of God and the throne of God. Because the presence of God is when He comes to you. The throne of God is when you go to Him. The presence of God manifests God's presence on earth where you are, but when you come into the throne room, He manifests your presence in heaven where He is. He actually takes you up into His presence, and you come into the throne room, and it's more than just God being with you. Now it's you being with Him. And the author of Hebrews says that we come before the throne of grace to receive grace in time of need. That is, when we come into the throne room, we're receiving. When we go into the inner court, we're losing everything. We're being stripped of everything. Everything's being taken off of us so that we can eat the bread of presence and receive the light of revelation. But when we go into the throne room, we're receiving grace, and we come boldly. Why? Because we've left the outer court a long time ago. We're not worried about our sins. We know they've been forgiven. We know we know. We're confident. We're not worried about it. We're not feeling all kind of shame and condemnation about stuff that the Lord's already taken away. In our infancy, we're learning that. The perfect or mature will of God is coming into the throne room. That's the will of God for us. That we go through the veil, which was the flesh of Jesus Christ, and come into the throne room where we stand at the throne of God with boldness, with confidence. And we begin to receive grace. Now, we've, got to misunderstand, we've misunderstood grace for the longest time. We get it mixed up with mercy. Grace and mercy are two different things. Mer Listen, there's a spirit of slumber coming over the house, and I break it right now in Jesus' name. The, the devil doesn't want you to get this. Right now, I just call your hearts and minds to attention. You're not going to feel sleepy anymore. It's, it's demonic. It's not you. It's demonic. It's the power of the devil that doesn't want you to get this. So we just break that in Jesus' name. We call your spirit to attention right now. Now you're awake. Physical tiredness is no big deal to the Lord, by the way. All he has to do is send an angel to touch you. <laughs> I was reading Zechariah chapter 4, and he said in verse 1, he said, then the angel touched me, and I was awakened as, as a man is awakened from sleep. You know the Lord can wake you up when you're already awake? And the Lord touches you and wakes you up, and you, oh, I didn't even know I was sleeping. The Lord can bring you into the light when you didn't even know you were in darkness. He can set you free when you didn't even know you were bound. Stuff can creep up on you and you don't even know it's creeping up on you. The spirit of slumber comes over you and you're walking around sleepwalking and you don't even know it. And all of a sudden the angel of the Lord touches you and wakes you up and says, I didn't even know it, but I was asleep. Now I'm awake. Amen. Amen. 
The perfect will of God is, oh, there's a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is when he doesn't give us what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. God says you've earned it. It's wages. Now, the state of California will get you if you withhold wages from an employee. It's not right to withhold wages from an employee. God says the wages of sin is death. God says, I owe you this. And I'm not about to be unjust and not give you your wages. But then he says, the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of eternal life is grace. But withholding the wages of sin is mercy. When God says, I owe you this death, but I'm not going to give it to you. But I don't owe you this eternal life, but I'm going to give it to you. Mercy says, I'm not going to pay you your wages of sin. Grace says, I'm going to give you the gift of eternal life that you don't deserve. Grace is giving you what you didn't deserve, what you didn't have coming to you, what you didn't see coming, what you didn't expect. It is the gift of grace that says, I'm going to strengthen you, I'm going to empower you, I'm going to build you up, I'm going to establish you, and I'm going to give you power. Amen. Grace is a power word. And so that is the perfect will of God. That we would come into the Holy of Holies where we become mature. Remember, the outer court corresponds to children. I write to you children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. The inner court corresponds to young men. I write to you young men because you're strong. Because the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. Young men in the inner court level, we like to fight the devil. We love fighting the devil. We're constantly coming against the devil and we're fighting. We love putting up our dukes and knocking him out. And the next day we got another battle and we put up our dukes and knock him out. But he says, you young men are strong. The devil can't take you down. You're learning that you've overcome the devil. Is this thing still on? Yes. You're learning that you overcome the devil. But when you come into the Holy of Holies, he says, I write to you fathers. Because you've known him who is from the beginning. You've transcended even the battle against the devil. I was talking to Pastor Daniels on Friday and he said, you know, when I talked to Dr. Kirby about the devil, he says, no, 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 he's a defeated foe. I don't fight him anymore. He said, he doesn't even want to talk about the devil. He won't even bring, I said, but the devil is, no, 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 don't talk, he's he's a defeated foe. He's Christ, our Lord Jesus, he triumphed over him, you know, disarmed him, made a public spectacle of him and. You know, it's done. I I don't wrestle with him anymore. I just live before the Holy of Holies. I just come into the holy place and where I begin to know him who is from the beginning. That's the perfect will of God. That we would transcend the battle against sin. That we would transcend the battle against the devil. And that we would come before the throne of grace and begin to receive grace in time of need. That's the perfect will of God. But then he said it's the pleasing or acceptable will of God. It's pleasing. It's not only perfect and it's not only good, but it's pleasing. And that word pleasing corresponds to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Only one thing that, God ple- that pleases God. Faith. Faith. By, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But when he sees faith come alive in our hearts, and all of these are connected, because we come to the place of obedience... You can only come to the place of obedience through faith. All sin is a result of unbelief. Because it's a wicked heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. All sin. The remedy for sin is faith. That's why the scripture says, repent and believe. The remedy for sin is believing, not groveling. 
Not crying, not wailing and mourning. Not feeling sorry for yourself and walking in condemnation and fear. You've got to rise up and say, I repent and I believe that you've forgiven me and cleansed me of all unrighteousness. I believe. And when you begin to walk in that faith, now you're righteous. And this is the connection. Almost every time the term righteousness appears in the Old Testament, it has to do with doing right. Right actions. And we go immediately to that context. Righteousness is doing the right thing. And it is doing right, but it's a doing right that flows out of believing right. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. And then he did right because he believed right. He offers Isaac on the altar. Uh, Oscar, brother, Pastor Oscar just read about that during the offering talk, how he took his son Isaac and offered him on the altar. And why was he able to do it? The author of Hebrews said he did it because he believed that God would raise him from the dead right there from the altar. He believed. He believed. And so he did right because he believed right. If you're not doing right, it's because you don't believe right. And so the kingdom of God is manifested in righteousness and righteousness is manifested by faith so that as we begin to believe God and as we begin to rise up in faith, then our right believing will flow into right acting. God wants us to renew our minds. He wants to see His kingdom go forth in the earth. He wants to see His kingdom begin to expand. He wants to see His kingdom manifest in us. It is time for the kingdom of God. And listen, the thing we need to understand as the church of Jesus Christ is that the church exists for the kingdom, not the kingdom for the church. For too long we've seen the kingdom as that which procures benefits for the church. Thank God for His kingdom because He's going to remove every obstacle before us. No, 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 no. Listen, the church is an instrument of the kingdom, not the kingdom an instrument of the church. And the church is expendable for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's why we go to dangerous places. That's why we do dangerous things. That's why we take risks. Because we're not as concerned about our own survival as we are about the kingdom of God. You with me this morning? And so God wants to manifest His kingdom on earth, but what He's looking for is power. What He's looking for is righteousness. And righteousness, you know that you've come into a place of complete righteousness when you've come into a place of complete faith. When there's not one situation or circumstance in your life that can cause you to doubt. Because God's right to rule is established when you believe. And that means that when you doubt, you're standing in opposition to God's right to rule. Doubt doesn't just stop you from obtaining blessing from God. It opposes His kingdom. If righteousness is the kingdom of God, then unbelief is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. In unbelief, we actually set ourselves in opposition against God and say, your kingdom ain't going to manifest here. And so when the enemy attacks you with unbelief, he's actually attacking and opposing the kingdom of God. The enemy actually doesn't care about you. He's not concerned about you. In the least bit. Say, the devil's fighting me. No, he's fighting God's kingdom. You're just in the way. And if he can get you to doubt and walk in unbelief and walk in fear, then he can stop the flow of the kingdom through your life. 
But if God can get you to believe and to rise up in faith and say, nothing that I encounter is going to make me doubt. I will not doubt. I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust the Lord. God says, now you're righteous. And there's my kingdom. I see it. You can manifest that in a thousand different places. I don't care where you go. I don't care what you do. You don't have to do it from a pulpit and say, oh, I'm a preacher. You can manifest the kingdom of God in your secular job. You can manifest the kingdom of God in your school. You can manifest it in your family. You can manifest it everywhere, but it's not a work. It's power and it's righteousness. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask you to manifest your kingdom in power and bring about your righteousness. Lord, it was the psalmist that said, you are my righteousness. The righteousness of God starts with the fact that he fully believes. When David says, you are my righteousness, he says, I believe with your faith. I believe as you believe. My spiritual father told me on Friday, he said, you know, I try to think like God thinks. I don't know why, I don't even remember what he was talking about when he said it, but he said, I just try to think the same way God thinks. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I believe the way he believes. And because I believe with his faith, I'm righteous with his righteousness. His righteousness only comes from his faith. He had so much faith that he looked at Peter, all full of sin and full of guilt and full of condemnation. When Peter was telling him to go away, he still believed for Peter. He said, no, Peter, just come follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That's how much I believe for you. You'll never begin to truly believe in God until you realize that he believes for you. He believes for you so much that he doesn't care how messed up you are. He believes for you so much he doesn't care how deep the pit is that you're in. He believes for you so much. He could care less what you've been through. You say, but I'm damaged goods. The Lord says, no, 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 no. I'm righteous. And that means that nothing can cause me to doubt. The fact of the matter is that God has never doubted. You and I have doubted many times in our life, but the promise of God is that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He's given us His faith, and He's given us His righteousness. And that means that you have been given the power to believe beyond believing. You've been given the power and authority over unbelief and over fear, and the way the kingdom of God manifests in you first is that it gives you the power to overcome unbelief. It gives you the power to overcome fear. It gives you the power to rise up and say, I believe. I know it looks impossible, but I believe. I know that there's no way I believe. I know that there's no fruit on the tree. I know that there's no cattle in the stall. I know that there's no sheep in the pen, but I still believe. I know that the wind and the rains and the storm look like they're going to tear this vessel apart, but I still believe it's going to be held together. I know it looks bleak. 
I know it looks like my marriage is about to be destroyed, but I still believe. I know it looks like my son will never come to faith in Christ, but I still believe. I know it looks like my finances are going to go under, but I still believe. I know it looks like I'll never be healed of this sickness, but I still believe. I believe. And that's why Job was called righteous. Because even when he had lost everything and he was down in a pit of coals, scraping the boils on his body, lost his children, and his wife was talking bad about him, he was able to rise up and say, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. Even if the canker worm eats my flesh, yet in my flesh, in my body, I will see God. Hallelujah. I know. That's the faith I'm talking about. That reckless Jovian faith. Says, I don't care if he kills me, yet will I trust in him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Sometimes you walk through things and you say, God, you're killing me. But Job said, Lord, you're killing me, but I still trust you. I still trust you. I still trust you. And God says, that's what I'm talking about. You're righteous. You're righteous. You're righteous. And what God is looking for in the earth is righteousness. That's how His kingdom extends, is righteousness. The reason the kingdom of God doesn't go forth in the workplace, in the business world, is because there's not enough believers who are walking in faith there. Your company's in trouble. Are you believing? Do they see you believing? Your family's in trouble. Do they see you believing? Or are you freaking out with everyone else? You're going to walk in faith. 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 I just rebuke that wicked spirit of, spirit of unbelief that causes us to turn from the living God. I rebuke it from over your life today in the name of the Lord Jesus. I break its power. I release faith in you right now. I release the faith of Jesus Christ. I release, come on, just receive it right now. I release the faith of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, the faith of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. I declare it, the kingdom of God is at hand. We assert the lordship of Jesus Christ. God has come to exercise his right to rule. He has come to exercise his right to rule, but he does it through your faith. He does it through your faith. Believing makes you a channel of the kingdom of God. It makes you a conduit of the kingdom of God. Believing as we stand in faith and believe, God says, now you're righteous and my kingdom can flow through you. Now through you I can exercise my right to reign. Hallelujah. Through your faith. Through your faith. Through your faith, through your faith, through your faith, just receive it right now. Believe it right now. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, that it's done. Mm. Hallelujah. Mm. Mm. You not only have victory over unbelief, but you have dominion over it. When you see it in the lives of your brothers and sisters, you're going to call them to believe. When your brothers and sisters in Christ begin to doubt, you're going to speak over them and say, No, you come back to faith. You're going to believe. You're not going to doubt. You're not going to doubt. You're not going to doubt. You're not going to doubt.
This is how the kingdom of God is established. Let me tell you something. It manifests primarily in the realm of finances. Because the financial arena is the primary place where the people of God are tempted to doubt and to walk in fear. One of the primary places. Family is another one. Genesis 14. Right before God declared Abraham righteous. In Genesis 14. His brother, his nephew Lot and his whole family was carried off. And he takes 318 trained men from his house. He tracks them down. He defeats the five kings. He brings back the spoils and the people. And the king of Sodom meets him in the valley. He says, Abram, I want you to keep all of the spoils, keep all of the money. Just give me back the souls, the people. And Abram said, I, I've sworn to the Lord my God that I'm not going to take a shoestring or a bootstrap from you. Lest you say I made Abram rich. He made a decision that he was not going to see the economic system of this world as the supplier and his provider. Listen to me. Your job is not your provider. Most of us aren't believing God for provision. We're believing our job for it. And as soon as it seems like your job is shaken, you're shaken. Oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to provide for myself? As if your job is your supplier, your provider. Abram said, I'm not taking a shoestring or a bootstrap. That should be your attitude when you go into the secular workplace. You should say, I'm not here for money. I'm here to bring the kingdom to this place. I'm not here because I need you to be my provider. God can provide for me without you giving me a dime. God can supply my every need without you giving me a penny. I don't need it from you. My Redeemer lives. Jehovah Jireh is my provider. Not this company, not that company. My trust is in the Lord. My help is in the name of the Lord. He is my provision. He is my sustenance. I'm here to bring the kingdom in this place. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to show you the kingdom of God. I'm here to show you what it means to walk in faith. I'm here to show you what it means. I'm bringing the kingdom. I'm here to manifest power. I'm here to show you what righteousness looks like. I'm here to show you what peace and what joy in the Holy Spirit looks like. You know why? Because the world is desperate for God's power. But you can never show the world God's power when you're desperate for the world's money. We're going to the world saying, please give me some of your money. And the world is saying, we're desperate for God's power and you're supposed to have it, but we don't see it in you. And we wonder why people don't believe in Jesus. Come believe in Jesus so you can be desperate for money like the rest of the world. When we begin to rise up in faith, we say, I don't need it. Like Jacob, I can work 14 years for free for Laban. At the end of it, he went away a wealthy man. But his provision didn't come from Laban. He was working for Laban for 14 years as an unpaid servant. Never asked him for a dime. Why? Because he wasn't trusting Laban for his provision. He was trusting the Lord for his provision. Listen, if God has you working in the secular world, that's wonderful. But understand that your provision doesn't come from there. It comes from the Lord. God's able to bless me from a, a completely different source. He's able to send it from a direction that you don't know. 
Jesus said to his disciples, they brought him back food. He said, I don't need your food. I got meat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's what I'm supplied with. I'm supplied by doing the work of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you feel faith just rising up on the inside of you? You feel faith? That's righteousness. Now you're righteous. Now you're righteous. And Jesus said it right there in Matthew chapter 6. He said, don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? All of these things the Gentiles are seeking. That's what the Gentiles who don't know the Lord, that's what they seek after. Food and drink and clothes, sustenance, provision. Don't worry, saying, oh, how are we going to eat? Oh, what are we going to wear? Don't worry. He said, but you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Your job is just to be righteous. Your job is to make sure you are manifesting the righteousness of God in an unrighteous world, in an unbelieving world. You're walking in faith in the midst of an unbelieving generation. And that's when you become a conduit of the kingdom of God. When you say, I'm walking in faith, even though everyone around me is doubting, my faith is in the Lord. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you as well. All these things. I hope you're still recording back there. All these things will be added to you as well. All of these things because your Father knows that you have need of these things. Your Father knows that you have need of these things. Your Father knows. Your Father knows what you need. Your Father knows what you need. Your Father knows what you need. Your Father knows that you have need of these things. He knows that you have need of these things, so you don't seek them. You don't seek them. You don't seek them. You're not seeking them. You're not seeking. Your heart isn't going after them because wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And you're not putting your treasure in worldly things. You're putting your treasure in heaven in the kingdom of God. He knows that you need some earthly things, but He supplies your needs. He supplies your needs. And so you're not going to worry or walk in fear or anxiety and doubt because your Father knows that you have need of these things. And then he says in Luke's version, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I just speak your blessing over this house this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that faith is being born in our hearts today. And it's arising. There's some folks came in here doubting this morning. They're going to walk out of here believing. And because we walk out believing, we walk out righteous. And I want you to embrace that. Whenever you are walking in faith, I want you to embrace it. Say, this is the righteousness of Christ that I'm feeling right now. What I'm experiencing, while I'm believing, that's Christ's righteousness. You've got to identify it as the righteousness of Christ. It's not pride because you know it's not your own righteousness. But identify it as righteousness. Say, that's the righteousness of Christ. And this is the kingdom of God. Now God is exercising His right to rule in me because I'm walking in faith. And it's the faith of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Father, we thank You for it. And we give You all of the glory.
In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Stand up and give God a shout of praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.